Ladies and gentlemen, a masterpiece by Jean-Michel Basquiat, last seen by the public in 1984. This is untitled from 1982, signed, inscribed NYC, and dated 82 on the reverse. And I'm going to start the bidding here at $57 million now. $57 million. At $57 million there. $57 million. $58 million now. $58 million. $59 million. What you just heard was the sale last week of Jean-Michel Basquiat's untitled 1982 painting. Yusaku Mezawa purchased the piece for $110.5 million, making Basquiat the most expensive American at auction, displacing Andy Warhol and sending push notifications to people's phones across the country. On this episode of the Artsy Podcast, I'm joined by executive editor Alex Forbes. Hey, Isaac. Art market editor Anna Louise Sussman. Hi, Isaac. And we're going to be going through this sale. Anna, you were actually there. You saw this happen. Uh, what was it like in the room? So it was a 10-minute roughly bidding war. The estimate had been at $60 million, and that's also the amount of the guarantee um, that Sotheby's had given the consigner. And so they started the bidding just under that at $57 million. There were a few gasps because it sounded a little bit like a kind of cheeky price to start bidding at because it's already equal to his previous record at auction. And then the bidding you know, went in increments, a million, half a million. Um, and eventually it emptied out and there was just two bidders left. There was someone in the room and there was someone on the phone with one of Sotheby's uh, Asia heads who was, on, turns out, on the phone with this Japanese buyer. And it w- kept moving in $1 million increments. $78 million now. $79 million. $80 million now. And by the end, when the underbidder finally bowed out at $97 million, $98 million was actually the winning bid. The $110 million um, includes buyer's premiums, um, which are kind of tiered. But anyway, it adds quite a large amount onto the uh, top of the now. final price. At $98 million. The hammer is up, sir. I'm selling on this side of the room. It's Yuki's bid. A fair warning. And selling. Thank you, sir. For $98 million. Thank you, Yuki. Congratulations. Thank you very much. LO300. Thank you very, very much. And there's something kind of surreal about sitting there and hearing everyone cheering wildly because someone just spent $110 million on a painting. <laughs> I mean, if it's I ever spend $110 million, <laughs> I hope I'm cheered. <laughs> if I ever, I can't even, I can't, yeah. No. Be, it's, it's impossible <laughs> it's to even think about. My imagination does not stretch that far. But but even for people who, you know, are following this market and do expect big sums to be spent, this was something of a surprise. They obviously expected it was going to exceed 60 million and a, break a previous record because I, I think just business-wise, 
you know, it's a, it's a pretty big gamble to guarantee it for that amount. Although there's also the strategy of having a very high profile kind of anchor piece for an auction that sort of scales expectations for prices upwards and also brings people out and attracts a lot of publicity to the sale. But the Sotheby's um, staff who spoke after the auction, uh, once they were done posing for selfies and uh, drinking Japanese whiskey in front of the painting, they did say they it didn't seem like they expected it to go that high. I mean, it's pretty much double his, his uh, previous record. So Alex, I think one thing that surprised a lot of people uh, is now that Andy Warhol has been displaced as the most expensive American at auction. What are your thoughts on what this tells us about either Basquiat's market or Warhol's market, both? Yeah, well, I think it tells us a little bit about both. I mean, if you back up to last year, Art Market Monitor calculated that in 2016, uh, Warhol's market had a 74% drop in, in value to, to levels really not seen since 2005. Um, so, you know, Warhol has been the kind of the barometer of the market you know, the contemporary market for, for a very, very long time. Um, Basquiat has more recently uh, had a have very, very significant spike in value. Maitsawa also purchased the record-setting Basquiat last auction cycle um, for $57.3 million, another untitled painting also from 1982. In terms of the Basquiat market, it really shows us how one very eager bidder can radically reshape the market for an artist and you know, I think it'll it'll be some time before those values really stabilize to the level um, that you see in the Warhol market. Warhol is probably one of those artists, if you look at auction house experts saying that over the last year values have dropped because they haven't been able to get good consignments. You know, I, I would look at that drop in, in overall price for Warhol sold in, in 2016 as a strong indicator of that. Also, there were very few, if any, kind of a plus quality Warhols in the sales this cycle, and um, you know market commentators have said that we'd have to see a really, really strong uptick in the market to get a you know phenomenal Marilyn or something onto the market, which would be the kind of equivalent Warhol painting to this square skull painting of Basquiat's. Um, so it kind of it remains to be seen, I guess. What would it take to sort of bring these Warhols out of? the private collections where they're sort of sitting right now. I mean, what's, what are the strategies maybe some of the auction houses are using because this is such a proven moneymaker for them? Whatever they could throw at it at the moment or whatever they could afford to throw at it at the moment probably wouldn't bring it out. If you look across the other sales, you had Sotheby's cover lot for the Impressionist and Modern sale, uh, the Sheila painting get pulled uh, right before the sale. Um, you had very few major paintings kind of going above their estimate, whether that has to do with changes in, in where estimates are lying or not. You know, I, I think time will tell. But y- you would have to be seeing significant pictures going above their estimate consistently, I think, to bring out those really top quality works. Until then, what if any sales of those are going on are probably happening privately. Um, That's likely what led Sotheby's to bring on Eric Shiner, um, who was formerly the director of the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, to their uh, fine art division, which uh, is is focusing a lot on private sales. Um, Obviously, Eric, as being part of that museum, knows where all of the best Warhols are. Um, so if he does get an offer from a client saying, you know, I'd, I'll have one for in excess of $100 million, which I guess is now the new market barometer, the $100 million club. So a phrase getting thrown around a lot at the end of last week, uh, which is somewhat absurd. Um, 
but you know may, maybe Eric is, is selling a lot of those behind the scenes somehow. I think you know you would notice that uptick in Sotheby's earnings statements more than than you have. So maybe time will tell. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting that one person or two people with an underbidder uh, can push this work up so so high, and uh, you know you wonder if it's going to raise all boats. You know, if 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 you're going to see a you know an influx of Basquiat to auction next season i mean what do you think is going to happen for basquiat this comment was made to me and i think it was taken from another news article but that this a sale like this really represents the value of money to the two bidders more than it represents the value of the art <laughs> yeah i mean to your point about more uh, basquiat's coming to market i think that's fairly inevitable i kind of laughed to myself last night when i was on instagram and brett gorvey had made a, a comment in an article about how you know, this a sale like this will bring more, more and more baskets to the market. Brett used to be the um, head of of Christie's, and now is part of uh, Levy Gorvia, a, a private dealership on the Upper East Side. But he he uh, then last night I saw on Instagram was posting a basket from a private collection to Instagram with many views and an album. Um, mm-hmm. Not to say that it's f- definitely for sale, but I would happen to uh, you know imagine that it could be purchased for for the right buyer. Yeah, I mean, I think there definitely is a conflation between market value and art historical significance. Alex, do you think, to take this specific example, if we're buying into that way of evaluating artists, Basquiat has the same art historical importance as Andy Warhol, for example? I think it's hard to say in the kind of long historical view. At this particular point in time, I think it's hard to argue that Andy Warhol isn't the the more important artist. I mean, if you just look at how he uh, radically reshaped the the entirety of contemporary art that came after it, I, I think it would be hard to make that argument. You know, Basquiat has such a compelling narrative, um, and the, the work is is undeniably phenomenal, but hasn't necessarily, in in my view, had as as much of a kind of uh, ripple effect to to the rest of, of kind of art that you, you see on the market today or being made today. You haven't seen him have major museum exhibitions in the way that, you know, Andy Warhol is um, the kind of hallmark of any museum having a, a major show and gaining kind of popular resonance. I, but there, there are some complicating factors around ha- getting works from his estate and whatnot that could contribute to that too. But, you know, it, it's also interesting and I think Anna has some things to say about this, but, this particular buyer wants to start a museum in Japan and get more of a uh, kind of popular enthusiasm around contemporary art in that country. And so even from just a strategic point of view, it does seem to kind of attract a, a broader public and maybe hipper public than than Warhols do. Right. I was thinking this morning about the uh, historical, uh, not that historical, because it only goes back a few decades, but the the relationship and affinity in Japan for American street culture and American hip-hop culture, um, and was wondering if that had anything to do with um, this collector's uh, passion for Basquiat, and as you were saying, Alex, you know, his, his idea of uh, making contemporary art appealing and accessible in his home country. Um, I just had a quick look at uh, Mr. Maisawa's Forbes profile. So he's a 
fashion uh, retail entrepreneur. Um, so he's already plugged into youth culture and street culture. And according to Forbes, he got his start selling um, music, uh, CDs and records by mail from his home. Um, and then he moved into e-commerce and, and now has this fashion retail empire. And his, you know, with his net worth is um, three and a half billion dollars. Like we were just saying, his, uh, spending $110 million is, okay, maybe it's 3% of, um, you know, his, his total net worth. But did this money just blow off into the wind like a dandelion? Not really. I mean, he he now owns a very expensive painting that theoretically has resale value. Um, I'm not sure what the tax law is in Japan, but um, you know, he it, there may be some implications there too. And you know, at the end of the day, um, this is not someone who's like, shoot, now I can't go out to eat as much this month because I got my. Basquiat, <laughs> the cut corners, or I'm gonna pack my lunch today. Um, so I, you know, I don't, I don't think this really hits him in the pocket the way it would the rest of us. You have to wonder what the kind of calculus that goes on, uh, you know, before making that kind of purchase, because I feel like, you know, having set that high of a price for a painting that, you know, part of its appeal was it had never been on the market since it was first sold for nineteen thousand dollars. You know, you—it's a store of value, but you're going to have to play a pretty long game if you ever want to to get rid of it. You know, I, I feel like it will have you know a nice halo effect around his uh, his other major basket, and I, I believe he has quite a few of them. Um, so maybe you can kind of put those extra forty million dollars in into raising the boats of those other paintings. But but it is interesting, kind of when you see somebody set such a audacious record that you wonder kind of when the next opportunity would be to to sell a painting for that much. I mean, for now, he what, what was sort of unusual was, of course, when the sale ended, everyone was taking in the fact that this record had been achieved and then everyone was whispering about, well, who was it? And, you know, within minutes, uh, he posted on Instagram, um, I am happy to announce that I just won this masterpiece. When I first encountered this painting, I was struck with so much excitement and gratitude for my love of art. I want to share that experience with as many people as possible. And there's a photo of him in front of the painting, which I I asked um, and found out that was taken. uh, He visited the painting in New York. So I guess he went to the preview, um, but he wasn't bidding in person. Um, But it's pretty unusual. um, My understanding for someone, um, you know, making such a splashy purchase to also be very public about it. Yeah, there has been kind of a tradition of particularly Japanese collectors bursting onto the scene and spending vast sums of money in a few auction seasons and then receding into the background. Um, So I don't know to to whatever extent he feels a part of that tradition too. Well, we're focusing in on this one lot, but obviously there were hundreds of uh, lots across the auction week. What did the rest of the sales kind of look like? Um, I had been expecting a... um something I think a little more frenzied um, and thrilling based on what I'd read about auctions. So there was a Aegon Sheila painting that had headlined um, Sotheby's Impressionist and Modern Sale um, that was supposed to be the star lot. And it was estimated, I believe, 30 to 40 million. And when you sit down in the sale, the auctioneer takes the podium and there's a brief little intro where she or he will say the house rules um, you know, these are the prices. This, then there's a buyer's premium. Um, he, some of these lots have uh, 
guarantees. And by the way, lots XYZ have been withdrawn. And it's typical that some um, works will get withdrawn. It's always at the consignor's discretion. And then a few minutes into the auction, we realized um, I was sitting with a number of other journalists in the press section that the lot that had been withdrawn was their headline star lot. And we all said, hmm, you know, the, the typical explanation is maybe the consigner got spooked by the previous night's results and didn't think the appetite was there. Um, someone from Sotheby's said, you know, we were on the phone all day, obviously trying to save this work from being pulled. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's really up to the consigner. And they did not say what they were going to do after, like, you know, whether it would be handled privately or um, just withdrawn from the market. So I don't know what happened to that. But, uh, you know, in general, I I had been expecting um, a little bit more of a kind of free-for-all. I think when you think of the idea of bidding and auctions, you think of things, you know, blowing past their estimates and, you know, something like what happened with Basquiat, and that's where the excitement lies. Um, And, you know, a lot of the, especially the um, more, the you know, what the auction houses will have as their highlighted or featured lots, there will typically just be a handful of bids. You know, the question is when, either are they setting the estimates too high or does having a guarantee, meaning that, um, there is some sort of minimum price that's been offered. Does that deter bidding and make it seem like the the auction is um, sort of pre-choreographed? Uh, it's known who's going to buy it and who's going to pay for it. Um, and does that sort of dampen the enthusiasm in the room? That That's kind of an open question. What do you think, Alex? Um, yeah, you make a good point about estimates. And, you know, for the past few seasons, people have been putting the uh, estimates kind of artificially low to stoke bidding. And there's also been this kind of new expectation that lots go above the estimate. Whereas, you know, if you think about what that actually says, that is a test, it's a, a judgment on value by the auction house. And kind of in a healthy market, you might expect that they should be right. People shouldn't be irrational in going above um, what a, a kind of reasonable price for a given work is. Obviously, the auction house love that when they do. Journalists love that when they do because we get to write um, more kind of exciting headlines. But, you know, I, it, that that also characterized a market in, in kind of leading up to 2014 that was fairly frothy and, and needed a bit of a correction downward. It also kind of goes in step with things across the art market at large where you're seeing quite a bit of choreography, whether it's at um, the evening sales in particular, which are to some extent a a very big advertisement for all the rest of the auctions that happen throughout the rest of the year. Um, You know, no doubt they they make some money, but even at the sale like the Basquiat where you think, oh my God, Sotheby's raked in uh, $15 million just in, in 10 minutes. Well, you know, they spent a ton of money on advertising. They might not have made anything on that sale. I don't know. We'll have to to wait for their earnings call to, to dig into the numbers. But even at the fairs, two major dealers are often selling kind of their, their works ahead of time quite a bit to hedge against any volatility that you'd see on the on the very day of, of the event. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of um, maybe there's an equivalent in the fashion industry where you have a couture show that's um, huge spectacle and theater and it cements the brand's image. Um, but the real money that they make is selling loads and loads of suits at Saks Fifth Avenue to people who buy off the rack. You know, Christie's sold nearly $450 million worth of work in their contemporary sale. 
um, they had the most lots of all. It was like over 73 lots or so or 71. But it had the least excitement um, to me of all of them. And I think that was because, you know, the estimates were reasonable or there was something worked out in advance. Um, so even though they had the highest total of the week in terms of sales of the four that I attended, uh, it, it actually had the least excitement. But what, one thing that was interesting was the CEO of Christie's said afterwards, he just wanted everyone to know that between sales, I think they had a, you know, a jewelry sale going on somewhere and a, an antique sale and, you know, things are happening in Paris and Hong Kong and Geneva. And um, so they are making lots of money in these other categories. It's just these are the headline ones. And so he noted, you know, by the end of this week, we'll have roughly coming on a, a billion dollars worth of sales. So that was just, you know, half of it. And there was lots going on elsewhere. Although worth noting that mm -hmm. two years ago, I think they did a billion dollars in sales just in the New York auctions themselves. Interesting. So it's a very yeah. different, different mm -hmm. situation that we're in now. I think the sales totaled mm -hmm. 1.4 billion this year. Not long ago, I believe it was mm -hmm. 2.3 was kind of the high. Um, so significantly different market than, than before. All right, so where in the art world are you going to be drinking white wine this week? Alex, let's start with you. Well, I'm probably not going to go this weekend because I'll be out of town, but I would like to go to Moment PS1 to see Ian Chang's show um, that's up right now through September 25th. It's uh, called Emissaries. It's all, th all three of the works in this series that he's been making since 2015 um, that use uh, video game engines to create uh, to create them. If you can't make it to PS1, you can also go onto the PS1 website, um, and there is a live feed of one of the works at any point in time um, that's streaming via the, the video game site Twitch. Do you ever been on Twitch, Alex? I can't say that I have. <laughs> I was not allowed to have video games as a child. Well, yeah, Twitch didn't exist uh, back when I played video games. A um, little bit of personal history. Anyway, Anna, uh, where are you going to be drinking white wine? I think the auctions was enough kind of art world um, white wine ness for me for a long time. Um, <laughs> and I wanted, but I, what I wanted to share, it was my first time, as I mentioned, covering auctions. Um, it was also my first time reading auction catalogs. Um, and I was really struck by the pros. I wanted to share this little um, niche of the art world with our listeners. Uh, it's really over the top um, praise written for every painting or sculpture um, that makes it sound like it's worth the hundreds of thousands or millions or tens of million dollars that they're asking you to pay. Um, so they really spare no expense when it comes to um, stacking the page with superlatives. Um, so this is a description of a, an abstract painting by Gerhard Richter, uh, the German painter, who is also a real auction all-star. Um, he usually performs really well at auctions. Uh, so the, here, here we go. Belonging to a hallowed body of large-scale abstractive builder executed in 1991, this towering painting delivers a breathtakingly symphonic and utterly enveloping field of pigment that is dazzling in its execution and riveting in its chromatic complexity, <laughs> simultaneously concealing and revealing spectacular accents of red, yellow, and blue primaries a sublime ivory veil of lusciously viscous white oil paint flows laterally across the canvas like a storm of snow 
surging across the geological strata of a cliff face. So I want to interrupt here. Isaac, how much would you pay for it? Um, well, I want to eat it more than I want to buy it. It sounds like a food. Uh, <laughs> I know. It sounds like frosting <laughs> <Yeah>. or um, <laughs> what's it called? Shave ice? <laughs> I mean, I feel like that, that strikes me as a <laughs> solid cream. two to four million dollar painting. Well, you had not gotten this painting, which <laughs> sold <laughs> for $15.4 million uh, on an estimate of 12 to $18 million. So you're going to have to wait until next time to get your Lusciously viscous Dang white it. oil paint. Yeah. Um, now I'm just hungry and I don't even have a painting. It's the worst. I'm actually going to be going to Nashville this week. There's a ton of stuff that I'm going to be checking out. I'm going to be going to the Frist Center. Uh, I might go to the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum. I don't know. I don't really like country music, but I feel like when in Nashville. Um, you but need some hot chicken? I'm going to get some hot chicken. It's going to be great. I'll bring some back. All right. So that's all we have time for this week. Thanks so much to Alex and Anna for joining us here. Thank you, Isaac. See you guys next time. Our producer this week, as always, editorial associate Abigail Kane. The theme music is by Broke for Free. <laughs> <laughs>